And as we come to chapter 22 of 1 Kings, we are still looking at the life of King Ahab there in the northern kingdom of Israel. And he's a powerful king. He's an evil king. God has revealed himself to him multiple times to draw him to himself. But he's stubborn, he's obstinate, and he's just not willing to yield to the Lord. And we see that yet God was constantly trying to reach him. And we even left off last week that when God pronounced judgment on him for having his wife Jezebel kill Naboth and then taking Naboth's vineyard, his neighbor, that God pronounced judgment on him, his household, his descendants. But when he humbled himself in war like sackcloth and ashes, God said, because he humbled himself, this won't happen while he's alive. So it just shows us like how gracious God is toward the wicked, you know, and, and how merciful he is toward humanity. And like he said in Ezekiel, he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but they turn and trust in him. So this man Ahab was a wicked king. He didn't ever get it right, but his life is important to us because God gives him multiple chapters in the Bible. But tonight it's the end of Ahab, and we also have introduced to us Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah in the south. And though the book of 1 Kings and 2 Kings focus on the northern kings from that time, like 931 B.C. to 586 B.C., this book will at times, and 2 Kings, draw attention to Judah kings who are good kings and Jehoshaphat's one of them. So we get some Jehoshaphat tonight mixed in with Ahab. But the last we heard is Ahab's condemned and he humbled himself and so it's merciful for him while he's alive. He doesn't have to see the consequences of his sin on his offspring if that's such a thing as merciful. Chapter 12, you know, God's just, so it's perfect with God, but for Ahab it was a sad ending. Chapter 22, verse 1, we read this. Now, three years passed without war between Syria and Israel. Then it came to pass in the third year that Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went down to visit the king of Israel. And the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth in Gilead is ours, but we hesitate to take it out of the hand of the king of Syria? So he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to fight at Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Also Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Please inquire for the word of the Lord today. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, that would be Ahab, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go against Ramoth Gilead to fight, or shall I restrain, refrain myself? So they said, Go up for the king will, for the, go up for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. And Jehoshaphat said, is there not still a, a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? So the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, oh, there's still a man, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I, I hate him because he, he doesn't prophesy good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say such things. Let's stop there for a minute. <laughs> so this is an interesting story because Second Chronicles has quite a bit on the life of Jehoshaphat. He is, as a whole, a very good king for Israel. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom, both had about 20 kings. There's never a good king in the northern kingdom. There's quite a few good kings in the southern kingdom, or average political kings and some very spiritual godly kings as well. And then there's a few bad ones too, but you get some good ones. And, and Jehoshaphat's one of those good ones. And so we read this story, and things that get our attention right away is that God condemned Ahab even before he took Naboth's vineyard 
and let his wife Jezebel have him falsely accused and, and killed there in the city square. Because in the, the, the two battles with Syria last week, where the Syrians came from the north and attacked the northern kingdom, God gave him gave Ahab victory and said, and you'll know that I'm the Lord. So the first victory goes, you'll know that I'm the Lord, so go home and think about it, what you're going to do next, because he's coming back. Then the second time, the Syrians come back and say, oh, our God's with us, and because we, they serve the God of the hills and we're the God of the valley, we'll, we'll fight him in the valley and we'll beat him. And, and God says, I'm having none of that. And so God dealt with the Syrians and wiped them out, or had gave Israel victory over them a second time. But when, when Ben-Hadad was caught, the Syrian king, by Ahab, he said, oh, my brother, you know, and let's make a deal. And they made a, an economic treaty. And like, oh, as our fathers did, you can set up a marketplace there in uh, Damascus and we'll be buddies and we'll restore what, you know, my father took from your fathers and, you know, we'll, we'll have peace. But then the Lord sent a prophet to him and said, hey, because you let live a man appointed for death, It'll be your life for his life. And that's really the story behind this entire chapter, because it will be his life for his life. The irony that after three years, after saying, oh, ben my brother, my brother, that now Ahab says, hey, we got to go take Ramoth of Gilead. We got, we got to go fight the Syrians, and we got, to re, we got to do this. And by the way, the words that are always associated with Jehoshaphat, excuse me, with Ahab is take, take, take. His words are take. You know, he's a taker. And it just gets my attention. He took Naboth's vineyard. And now he's like, oh, we got to go take this. And just, just one of those people that always has conflict because they're never satisfied. And now we got to go get this. It's not enough that you took the vineyard from the guy next door that was his inheritance. And now you got to go do this. And just, it's, they're never satisfied, people like this. No matter how many billions or trillions they're worth, they're never satisfied. It's never enough. And, and that's how takers are. Takers take and keep on taking, you know. It's never enough even when they're taking almost all your stuff because there's more to be taken. And that's what he is. He's just that way. So he's like, well, we're going to go do this. But it's hard to be a king of Israel for the living God when you don't serve the living God and he's passed judgment on you. So that would be pretty tough morning time with your wife being Jezebel as well. That's his life. So Jehoshaphat shows up. He's like, hey, let's go. Let's go. It's been three years. Let's, let's go get these Syrians. It's just the, back, the background of the story is just, hmm. Now, Jehoshaphat, we know as we've studied these kings in the north, they've been at war with the kings in the south. So the, the nation of Israel, this ethnic people, these 12 tribes that are divided, 10 and 2, because Benjamin was absorbed by Judah in the south, they've been at war. And they've been fighting each other. They've been bickering amongst each other. They've had actual war and combat against each other. And it's been a reality. Now, Asa was Jehoshaphat's dad. And we saw that he had a long reign, over 40 years. And he saw multiple kings of Israel come and go. These bad guys, Basha and the rest of them. Omri, they came and went. But eventually, you know, Asa stepped into eternity. And his son, Jehoshaphat, became king. So there's been stability in the south and instability with six wicked kings in the north. And so now here comes Jehoshaphat, the son of the great Asa, and he's got to figure out how to function with Ahab. But he gets this idea for unity, and this is the first thought we get to now in this text. Jehoshaphat was trying to make peace. And, you know, we do want peace, right? Who wants conflict? If you can have peace with your neighbor or your enemy, it's always better than not. But sometimes there's just, you can't, you can't have peace. There's no peace between Satan 
the fallen angels and the principalities and powers of darkness with the kingdom of God. There's never going to be peace. You just can't have peace with the devil. He, he'll say peace and he'll break peace. It'll be like, you know, be like Hitler or Neville Chamberlain with his signature from Hitler, peace in our time before World War II really unraveled. You got Hitler to sign the peace treaty, who's satisfied with Czechoslovakia. He's not going to do anything more. Look, see, peace in our time. Neville Chamberlain looked so foolish when he did that. And then, you know, within a matter of months, Hitler rolls into Poland and it's World War II and it's 50 million people dying. You can't have peace with someone like Hitler. You have to confront him and deal with him. You can't have peace with someone like Stalin. You have to confront him and deal with them. That's just the way it is. And those might be literal kings of the earth who just are sent on total conquest, but there's always spiritual entities behind the physical entities, even as we see in the prophets where the king of Tyre is considered a demonic entity, where God speaks about the devil and refers to him as being a king of the earth, but then it describes Lucifer and what he was like in heaven before he fell. And you realize we've just gone from the king of Babylon to who's leading the king of Babylon, the spiritual force behind him. As long as we're living for Jesus Christ on planet earth before his second coming, we are going to have conflict. We're going to have conflict with people who hate Jesus, people who hate God's word, people who hate God's law, and people who are opposed to everything holy, true, just, noble, honorable, and praiseworthy. And there's no way around it. And Jesus said, don't be surprised by that, because the world hates me, it hates you. So when we want to have unity and have peace with people because they say the same things that we say sometimes, it's, it's peace or unity at the expense of truth. And with Jehoshaphat, he wanted peace. But remember, these are people of covenant. This isn't like Jehoshaphat wanting peace with the Edomites or the Moabites or the Ammonites, the other neighbors, or even the Syrians. Because they're, bo- they're both, they're the ten, they're 12 tribes of Israel. So they're the people of covenant from Mount Sinai with God and Moses and the circumcision on the eighth day for the men and all the signs of the covenant. The Passover feast, it's all for them. They have this in common, but the northern kings, they don't serve Jehovah, they serve Baal. They bring in the prophets of Baal to worship Baal. They bring in all the evil influences, and they're not seeking Jehovah. God's word is not their directive, but Jehoshaphat, he's Deuteronomy 6. When you wake up in the morning, you'll talk about the Lord. When you go in the field, you'll talk about the Lord. When you come home and you sit down with your wife, you'll talk about the Lord. That's Jehoshaphat's worldview. But just because Ahab in the north says, oh, I go to church too, and I believe in Jesus too, and I believe the Bible, kind of, sort of, doesn't mean you have fellowship with him, and he didn't. Because Second Chronicles tells us the great sin of Jehoshaphat was making peace with Ahab. He wanted unity But this unity is no true unity. It was unity at the expense of truth, which is not unity at all. It's a double death sentence. You're never going to elevate Ahab. He's going to pull down Jehoshaphat. And there's just, just because people say they go to church or believe in God and say Jesus is this or that, it does in our culture, and we understand of tolerance and acceptance and all that, that's great. You know, we can agree to just not go there and, and work together, drive on the freeway together, serve in the PTA or whatever city council together. We can do that. But when we come into this place and we sing songs with Danny Donnelly about Jesus, our unity is in the person, the work, the promises of Jesus Christ and the authority of his word from Genesis to Revelation and the promise of his coming kingdom. So we don't have fellowship with him. We just don't. I mean, it's, for me, it's really easy. When I see, like, the Archbishop of 
you know, the Anglican church, this woman says that, you know, all these things are acceptable that are an abomination to God. And she says all roads lead to God, not just Jesus Christ. How could we ever have fellowship with her? I maybe can have fellowship with someone from the Anglican or Episcopalian church who believes that Jesus is the final authority. And there certainly are many Episcopalians that think that way. And the word is the final authority. But I can't have unity with her. How can I have unity with her? I believe the person without Christ is perishing. She believes the person without Christ can eat, drink, and be married, do whatever they want. And all, we're all going to be saved like a unit, Unitarianism. It's nonsense. Jesus didn't die on the cross to leave people dead in their trespasses and sin. He died on the cross to raise them from the grave of their sins and give us eternal life. And we know that here tonight. So Jehoshaphat's big mistake here is that temptation that you get when you're a spiritual leader or you want to get along with the family members and you just try and you just want to have peace. I get it. We do. But sometimes there just is no peace at the compromise of the person, the work, the promises, and the authority of God's word with Jesus Christ. You just can't compromise it. As even says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, what fellowship is Christ with Baal? What fellowship is the communion table of the Lord with the table of demons? None. So even though they're ethnically all Jews, ethnically the uniqueness of being under the covenant with God, there is no fellowship. And God reproved Jehoshaphat for pursuing peace with someone he could never have peace with. And you know, we're told, as much as up to you, the peace be with all men, says that in the New Testament. But just some people, like, you just, you got to keep them outside your zone. And you just, there's nothing you can do. When they throw it, when Jezebel gets thrown out the window and eaten by the dogs in Second Kings, preview of coming attractions. Um, when that, I know, right? <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. But when that happens, the last thing she's saying before she's tossed out the window is treason, treason, treason. Like, you, you just, you can't have peace with that woman. You just can never have peace with that woman. And you can't let her run your children's ministry or influence your board of directors. Right? Yeah. By the way, Jesus says there's a spirit of Jezebel in his church in Revelation. Jesus Christ, seven churches. You tolerate the spirit of Jezebel, that woman Jezebel in the church. So we'll get to that in 2 Kings. So that was the mistake here. My horses are your horses. My people are your people. I'm with you. It's like, hey, easy, easy, easy. Who you shake hands with, Jehoshaphat. This guy's condemned. And whatever he touches is cursed. You're just be a spirit-filled man and preach the Torah and the law. And whatever you touch is blessed. Don't think this guy thinks like you at all because he doesn't. You've got courage and vision. This guy's a coward and he's going to die a coward's death. But it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's just this whole backdrop to this story is Jehoshaphat wants the unity at the expense of truth. And God's never going to honor that. Now we read on, and so Jehoshaphat says, okay, I'm doing this. So he realizes these 400 prophets are like, what are these guys? And what happened to the prophets of Baal? Like, they ki- Elijah killed the prophets of Baal, Jezebel's prophets. Suddenly there was 100 prophets that we know that were hidden in the caves that were true prophets. Who are these 400 guys? They're not true prophets. They're the people that say what you want to hear when you're going to hell. They pat you on the back. They're not true prophets. And even Jehoshaphat's going like, isn't there anyone else? He's like, yeah, the guy that always says I don't want to hear. Yeah, because when you're evil, you can't have blessings pronounced upon you. 
There is no rest for the wicked, saith the Lord. Verse 9, Then the king of Israel called an officer and said, Bring Micaiah the son of Imelah here quickly. And the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, having put on their robes, sat each on his throne at a threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria, and all the prophets prophesied before them. I mean, just picture this. The two guys on their thrones, everyone's prophesied. We're going to have victory. We're going to crush the Syrians. Verse 11, Now Zedekiah, the son of Chenaniah, had made horns of iron for himself. And he said, Thus says the Lord, With these you shall gore the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so, saying, Go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper, for the Lord will deliver it into the king's hand. Then the messengers who had gone to call Micaiah spoke to him, saying, Hey, listen, now listen. The words of the prophet with one accord encouraged the king. Please let your word be like the word of one of them and speak encouragement. And Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, whatever the Lord says to me, that I will speak. And then he came to the king, and the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall we refrain? And he answered him, Go and prosper, for the Lord will deliver it into the hand of the king. So the king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Then he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his house in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Didn't I tell you? I told you. He, I told you he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. Then Micaiah said, Therefore, so Micaiah's not done yet. These guys are on their throne looking all high and mighty. And Micaiah's a prophet like Elijah. And he says, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. Ooh, ooh, mic drop right there. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing by on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will persuade Ahab to go up that he may fall at Ramoth Gilead? So one spoke in this manner and others spoke in that manner. Then his spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. And the Lord said to him, in what way? So he said, I will go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all the prophets. And the Lord said, you shall persuade him, also prevail Go out and do so. Therefore, look, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of these prophets of yours, and the Lord has declared disaster against you. Now Zedekiah, the son of Chenaniah, went near and he struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, Well, which way did the spirit from the Lord go from me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, Indeed, you shall see on that day when you go hide in the inner chamber. When you go in the inner chamber to hide, this, like, this should be in a movie. This is like such good stuff here. Verse 26. So the king of Israel said, Take Micaiah and return him to Amnon, the governor of the city, to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison and feed him with bread of affliction and water of affliction until I come in peace. But Micaiah said, If you ever return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, and you can picture him looking at all the people, Take heed, all you people. Wow. We need more people like this guy in the church of Jesus Christ in 2023. Yes and amen? People are just like, what? Oh, we're so impressed by your throne of power. Masters of the universe. You control it all. What we can think, what we can speak. Now, you got guys like this just like, what? We talked about this with Elijah. Elijah, before he's ever making bold things about no rain, rain and all this stuff, it says, I, who stand before the Lord. And we had a whole application. Now, he would come from the presence of the Lord. And when you've seen the Lord, you don't fear men. Isaiah, the same thing. Woe this, woe that. He sees the Lord. Woe is me. When you've seen the Lord, when you've really seen the Lord, 
in the quiet time with the Lord and you're still when you read his word or it gives you a vision or a dream. And he's done that to me more than once. And you just see the Lord and you realize, oh, my goodness, I am nothing. This giant universe with trillions of galaxies. He knows the hairs on my head. He cares about me. And he's in control. And what, what made me afraid should not make me afraid at all. In fact, having seen the Lord, I should be more bold than I've ever been and more courageous than I've ever been. And courage isn't the absence of fear. It's just the willingness to go forward and do what's right. And Micaiah is this. One thing for 35 years teaching the Bible that I, I haven't liked about this story is that you never hear about Micaiah again. He's just thrown in prison, right? He's thrown in jail under the control of the king's son. But, of course, we know the whole house of Ahab is going to be cut off. So even the king's son, Joash, is going to be, he's going to be cut off. You just, it's kind of like John the Baptist in jail with Herod the Tetrarch or something. You're just like, ah. But, you know, when you're Micaiah, like, you just, you're good with it. Like, you're good with it. He just calls it out. But I, I just love the contrasting thrones. There's something that in this chapter we see the two kings of Israel the north and the south, on their thrones, and 400 people saying, you can do it, let's go. It's like a high school pep rally, out of control. No one wants to hear him for a beatdown, but if you deserve it, you're going to get it. And Ahab deserved it. This word is a true word. And I think what's, like, there's really, like Pastor Chuck Smith used to mention, like there's a line you cross and there's no coming back from. And, and you don't really know where it is and who has it. But when you reject God's word so many times that you don't hear the truth, you're going to cross the line and go for a lie and never come back. Which is what the Bible teaches us in the end game in the last generation of planet Earth. Because we're told that because people rejected the truth of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, they're going to believe a lie. And God's going to give them over the entire planet which is easier to picture now after what we've been through the last couple of years, how easily people surrender their, their free will, their cognitive capacities, their common sense, let alone critical thinking. And they're going to be given over to a spirit of delusion that's not just any spirit of delusion, like, you know, politicians can deceive you and, oh, don't look at what's happening over here. Look at this over here. And, you know, and they, they push buttons for fear, or intimidation, suppress the truth, try and silence the truth, cancel the truth. But you see, what's coming to planet Earth is all the power of the devil. That's a sobering thought. All the power of the devil in one person on planet Earth to perform supernatural lying signs and wonders to deceive the entire planet. That is a very sobering thought. Now you say, well, it seems like that could happen next week or tomorrow. It does, doesn't it? But that doesn't mean it's going to happen tomorrow or next week. Well, it seems like it'll happen before I'm 80 by 2041. Well, maybe, maybe not. Men have been deceitful. Women have been deceitful. People in power have been tyrannical and psychosociopaths and narcissists since Adam fell and his son killed the other son, right? Jezebels have come and gone in every generation. So there's this spirit of Antichrist the New Testament talks about. And the spirit of Antichrist will always be deception against the truth, falsehood against the truth, with even as Corinthians talks about, lying signs and wonders. The devil has lying signs and wonders to deceive people. And the only way that we can be sure we're not deceived by anything in our generation or the end game is to press into the truth, to know the truth, and to truly know it. 
from a pastoral perspective, there's so much stuff that comes at me that wants to attack the truth. But myself, like you, we have to be like Billy Graham when he was there at Forest Homes some 80 years ago. And he had to determine in a post-World War II world when the person that discipled him, Templeton, renounced his faith and went full liberalism against the Bible. Billy Graham had to decide was his faith in a man or in the Bible. And if it was in the Bible, he was going to accept the Bible and its inerrancy and its initial giving. And that whatever was a difficult in the Bible, and there are Bible difficulties, but it still is truth and it harmonizes itself. He was going to accept Genesis to Revelation and never let the devil move him from that. Thus, he became so fruitful in all that he does that his son's shoeboxes will be here on this stage in three weeks. We're praying for him as they go out to the ends of the earth. And it's so important that we can come to that place, like Micaiah, where we so know the truth, we so know who's on the throne, that nothing's going to move us from that. And whatever deception, 400 prophets at their pep rally in front of two kings with their thrones of power and all the millions of dollars of wealth they represented, because they did represent that wealth. You know, they're pulling away. What's he say? Hey, if you ever come back in peace, you know, God didn't speak through me. Hey, listen, everybody. Hey, hey. That's how we want to be on our last day. If that's your last day, isn't that a good look? Or would it rather be this other guy with the horns? <laughs> Zedekiah. <laughs> like, how foolish does that look the day after the battle? That looks pretty foolish. When everyone gets scattered, Ahab dies in battle, and you come to dinner and your wife sees their horns, and you're like, ah, yeah, you know, and your wife looks at you like, it's like the elephant in the room. Even the dog looks, looks at you like, you know, it's like, we all know you're a false prophet. It's just, I'd rather be eating the bread of affliction and drinking the water of affliction with truth and my integrity and my faith in my heart than to be. That person is more free with the Lord for all eternity than this guy down the street with his horns on his dinner table thinking, where do I put this trophy now that this didn't come to pass? Oh. How evil men seem so strong. And so right with their thrones and their, their ranting and their raving. But we just need to see the Lord on his throne and speak the truth and not be moved from it. The thing that I love about Micaiah is he's not moved from the truth. He's not going to be moved from the truth. He, he just says, if you ever return in peace, if you ever return in peace, the Lord didn't speak by me. This is a person that really knows, like Paul said, I know who I believed in, and I'm persuaded able to keep that which I've committed to him until that day. This is the kind of conviction we need when we're facing the grave and we're breathing our last. This is how we need to be like, hey, we know that we know that we know. And no matter how much exterior pressure in our personal lives or in our society or the Antichrist himself or the devil himself behind the Antichrist would seek to make us move the boundaries of God's word to just... Widen the narrow gate just a little bit, we just can't. Or to narrow it a little bit, we just can't. It's not Jesus plus a narrower gate or Jesus plus a wider gate. It's Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. And it's a narrow gate. So we're just reminded like, to be like Micaiah and hold fast to truth and not be afraid to speak it, even if it's unpopular. It was a difficult time for him and his friends and his family, his loved ones. It was a difficult time for us 
at this time on planet Earth for the church. But you know what? Jesus is on the throne. We just need to keep seeing Jesus. I see Jesus. I see Jesus, and I don't let people who lie, connive, conspire, deceive, and do all and manipulate. I, I, I don't let it bother me. I just don't. I just I see Jesus, and what are we doing today? And I hope you're the same way. Verse 29, so off they go. So here they go. They roll out to battle, and look at this. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead, and the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you put on your robes. Like, <laughs> I had to stop, like... Like Jehoshaphat, yeah, this is what I, I just, oh. You'd think, like, no, that's kind of odd, you know, like, here, you wear the bullseye, and I'll go camouflage, right? <laughs> you wear this bullseye, here, I got this uniform for you, this target, red, orange, yellow, yeah. Hi, king of Israel, you know, like, and I'll go camo and look under, I'll just look all low-key. Yeah, go into battle, but you put on your robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now, the king of Syria had commanded the 32 captains of his chariots. So Ben-Hadad got, that got 32 captains of chariots. He's waited three years. He also, he's, like, he's probably thinking, like, I'll show you who your brother is. I'm your brother. I got your brother right here. That's how the world is. It's just so ruthless. They cancel each other. So the king of Syria came out with his 32 captains of his chariots, saying, hey, fight with no one small or great, but only with the king of Israel. So isn't it ironic? The king of Israel showed him mercy three years before, and he's, he's coming back. So it was when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat that they said, surely it is the king of Israel. And therefore they turned aside to fight against him. And Jehoshaphat cried out. And it happened when he, the captains of the chariots saw that it was not, not the king of Israel, that they turned back from pursuing him. Now a certain man drew a bow at random, struck the king of Israel between the joints of his armor. So he said to the driver of his chariot, that is Ahab, turn around, take me out of the battle for I'm wounded. The battle increased that day. And the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians and died at evening. The blood ran out from the wound onto the floor of the chariot. Then as the sun was going down, a shout went throughout the army saying, every man to his city, every man to his own country. So the king died. And it was brought to Samaria and they buried the king in Samaria. Then someone washed the chariot at the pool in Samaria and the dogs licked up his blood while where the harlots bathed according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken. Now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did, the ivory house which he built and all the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So Ahab rested with his fathers, then Ahaziah his son reigned in his place. So this is the end of Ahab. Interesting detail, when Jehoshaphat suddenly realized that everyone's coming for him, he cried out to the Lord. We're told in Second Chronicles that he, he cried out to the Lord and the Lord heard him. So it's not dumb luck that he got away like his chariot was his horse was a little bit better than the other horses. He escaped the 32 captains of chariots coming after him because he cried out to the Lord and the Lord gave him deliverance. Now, Kings doesn't give us the detail that his deliverance was from the Lord, but Chronicles does. So even in his folly, see, this is the difference between being someone who's redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and someone who's just playing church and religion. When you're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and you're born of the Spirit, God might chasten you. He might give you a good spanking. But in the end, he's going to look out for you. And he's going to have your back. The people of faith in Jesus Christ, God has our back. On our worst day, in our most foolish decisions, in our, in our worst moments, like David with Bathsheba and Uriah and all that, he still has our back. We saw that. David had the heart for the Lord. All of his folly, God still had his back. Saul, he's playing church. He's just, it's all about Saul. God didn't have his back. And 
the whole thing with Samuel coming back to the witch of Endor's house, like, man, this is a bad ending. We've already seen this. This is another bad ending. Jehoshaphat was a man of faith, and he made some really bad business decisions on this day. And he put his life at risk because of bad decisions, but the Lord delivered him, which reminds us yet again that God is our peace, God is our protector, and God is our prosperity. We're in the hands of the Lord. It's his job to give us peace that surpasses understanding, which is promised to the believer in Christ. It's his job to protect us from evil because he promises to. And it's his job to provide for us the things he has for us in our journey and what he entrusts to us for our stewardship. For the people of faith, for the woman of faith, for us tonight, that's what, who, who he is for us. So when we make mistakes, take a step of faith, we want unity at all costs. We suddenly realize, like, oh, this was a really bad idea. God is still there for a soft landing and a gracious working through it that we can grow and learn from it. But for someone like Ahab, man, his last day, I, I, I don't know, because I've seen people breathe their last, and maybe you have too, and I've seen people step into eternity, and I've done lots of memorials, young and old and everything in between. I think of my own mortality with being in my 60s and you know, I go hang out with my dad, 92, and I, you know, I come in the room, and he's taking a nap, and he's so cute at 92. He's like, your little daddy's taking a nap. He's so cute. And I filmed him. I'm like, oh, dad's taking a nap. I sent it to my sister. She's like, oh, he's so cute. He's like a little, like a little cutie doll or something. He's like, there he is. It's all, he's all happy, you know. He had no malice in his heart toward anyone. And then we go down to the beach, and we look at the beach, and he's just like, uh-huh. And it, like, I think because I understand that reality for all of us, as you get closer to the, the end game, and, and how you want to be. And I just think like, I think about the last day. I don't always think about it, but I certainly do think about it. I mean, I, again, I'm doing a memorial in a couple of weeks at Calvary for Peter Hughes, who used to, you know, he sat right where Lisa Narita is sitting right now. He used to sit there with his family for like three, four years, and wonderful man of God, and he stepped into eternity, and on his last day, he looked at his wife, and he says, I think I'm having a heart attack. Call 911. And she called 911, and she's talking to him, and he, he's passing right in front of her eyes. That was his last day. There's an end. As it says in Hebrews, it's appointed a men to die once and then the, the judgment or the accountability for believers. And this is, this is Ahab's last day. So picture this. Randomly, there's no random with the Lord. He's got the armor on and you, you can run, but you can't hide from the Lord. People that fight the Lord, you can run, but you can't hide. Wham, right there. Here it comes. Like, oh. Jehoshaphat has deliverance from the Lord, but Ahab, he's, he's, he's not under the blood, so it's his blood. And because he let a man appointed for death go, it's his life for his life. Ben-Hadad was to be executed for crimes against humanity by Ahab. Ahab called him his brother, called Elijah his enemy in the next chapter, and this is the end of it. His life for the life he let go. And the irony of it is, the death sentence on his life was given by Ben-Hadad, the king of Israel. Isn't that crazy? And we talked about last week, if you don't kill your pride, your pride will kill you. If you don't kill your flesh, your flesh will kill you and be your undoing. If you don't kill the lust of the eyes, the lust of the eyes will kill you. If we don't put the deeds, if we don't reckon the old woman, the old man dead, as the Romans 6 says, then that person will come back and it'll kill us. We have to put to death what God pronounces a death sentence on. And the number one thing on planet Earth is a death sentence for is the old man and the old woman that you're looking at in the mirror tomorrow morning. And that's why we're told to present ourselves as living sacrifices daily to the Lord.
to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We are living sacrifices. So we actually come alive and surrender. Jesus said, if any man follow me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross and die weekly, monthly, quarterly, yearly, millennially, decadely, centrally, no, daily. So it is a great reality that we need to submit ourselves daily to the Lord. First thing. So our mind our the mind is the mind of Christ. Our action is the kingdom of God. Our reaction is buffeted by having been in the presence of God. So even when our buttons are getting pushed, we can even when we turn the ball over, we don't unravel. We stay in the game and we keep our head in the game. We're like, okay, we'll get this right. Let's just regroup on this day. We can't change what happened an hour ago at work, but we can you know, regroup with the Lord and let's just go forward. Don't surrender any day to our folly. I'm learning that at 61. You have bad moments on certain days where he's like, oh my goodness, and you just want to surrender today. Like it's a, like a sporting, like in baseball and softball, there's a mercy rule, right? And I think like you got to get to the fourth inning, like you can be beaten like 20 to nothing in the NCAA playoffs for the women's softball, but you still got to play four innings. But once you get to four innings, you get the mercy rule. And sometimes when you're getting a beat down, you just, want to, you just want to forfeit. You just want to, like, can we just be mercy right now? You know, Timmy was on a baseball team in eighth grade, my son Timmy, that they never won a game. So was Luke. Actually, it was seventh grade. They both were on teams in seventh grade, three years apart, that never won a game in baseball. And God will teach a lot to young boys becoming men about never winning a baseball game. But with Timmy's team, they were so bad that I devoted an entire Easter break to make them at least functional. Hey, you know, hitting, fielding, pitching. They, they were so bad that teams were switch hitting against them in the second inning. And to the praise of God's glory and his faithfulness to Timmy and his team, they didn't get mercied in the second half of the season. They lost some games like 8-2, to 9-3, to three, which was respectable. But I remember one game, it was over the Costa Mesa field, not, not the Tinkle Park, whatever it was, but the one kind of by the city, kind of by the Trader Joe's on 17th Street. There's a field over there. And it, they were hammered like 30 to nothing in two innings. It, it was so embarrassing. It was just this mismatch. It was unbelievable. And, and like the kids are all dejected. They're like Calvary Chapel B team, you know, like, what do you expect? You tell them to call them the B team. All the teams not picked on the A team. You predetermine their belief system to have no confidence. I guess that's when a whole Easter break telling them, you can do this. Dumbo, you can fly. The lucky feather. Let's do this. And we got better. But it was so hard to watch, and you just wanted to capitulate and surrender. And sometimes you want to do that, but you can't. And there's no hiding from the Lord. That arrow hit him. He's gone. He's dead. There's no hope for him. But for Jehoshaphat, there's, there's lessons to be learned to go forward. He cried out to the Lord. He was delivered. And there is Ahab with his blood out. He's watching the sunset, and he's facing the people that he, he's facing his failure. He did not execute, which God put in our death sentence. He didn't execute it, and now he's looking at it as he's bleeding out on a chariot. And in his pride, he still has the strength to face Syria, like facing a firing squad, and bleed out with the sun setting. So no matter what the beatdown is, we don't go for the forfeit and the white flag doesn't go up. There are tough days in life, but this is not how we want to end. We want to regroup, 
pull it together, and we're not going to surrender a day because we had a bad moment at 10 a.m. in the staff meeting, because we had a bad moment with our spouse at 11 a.m., or we had a bad moment on the freeway at 2 p.m., we had a bad moment with these people on the surface streets in Santa Ana at 3 p.m. We, we're not going to surrender the day because the greatest thing we have is today. We're told to redeem the day. You ever see star athletes like Tom Brady throw like a pick six the other way, interception at the beginning of the game? They don't even blink. You, you, you know, the closers come in in baseball and they give a home run. Like, that's that. This is the next batter. So that's how I feel like God's really teaching me. Like, no surrender. Failures happen. Chin up. Pull it together. You can't change it. Even that moment three hours ago. Don't surrender. The greatest thing, the greatest gift and equity we have is today, this moment. Don't surrender it because there's a failure earlier in the day. I, I feel like I've surrendered so many days and weeks and months and years of my life for the wrong things. Fight for the gift of life and the call of God in our life. And cry out to the Lord in your worst moment. <laughs> you got a bullseye. Like, you got 32 captains on their chariots coming after you. But who's the arrowhead? The guy who's not redeemed by the blood of the lamb. That's who. Who's protected, even in their worst moment? The one who calls Jehovah Lord of Israel. That's who. What a great lesson. Even in our worst moment, God's got our back. <laughs> Literally. Where there's, there's Ahab with his arrow just like facing the sunset. Thinking about all, thinking about, was it worth it, Naboth's vineyard? Yeah, your wife had him executed, but you wouldn't claim the deed. You went down to the county court clerk and you claimed the title and deed of that property as yours as you're bleeding out. All those contracts you made other leaders sign that you, they weren't harboring Elijah. It's all, your whole life's playing out before you when you're bleeding out in that chariot. That is not our ending. Our ending's like this. All at peace, just like, oh, that's our ending. Well, it may not be, but that's not a bad one. Either way, Micaiah had peace. But the last thing you said is you're not coming back in peace because there's no peace for people at war with God. And those who are at peace with God have more peace even imprisoned than those who are free in conflict against the Lord. Verse 44, excuse me, verse 41, we wrap it up with Jehoshaphat and Ahaziah, some closing thoughts that conclude this book. Jehoshaphat, the son of Asaph, had become king over Judah in the fourth year of Ahab, king of Israel. Jehoshaphat was 35 years old when he became king, and he reigned 25 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Azibah, the daughter of Shilhi, and he walked in the ways of his father, Asa. He did not turn aside from them, doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away, for the people offered sacrifices and burnt incense on the high places. Also, Jehoshaphat made peace with the king of Israel, which we know was his undoing, uh, or not his undoing, but not a good thing. Verse 45, now the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat the might which he showed, how he made war, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And the rest of the perverted people, that's the, the gay prostitutes there with the Kadeshi, who remained in the days of his father, Asa, he banished from the land. He gave no place for this stuff that was detrimental to society and humanity. He drove it out. There was no king in Edom, only a deputy of the king. So he, he took care of business in what was his stewardship, and then there was the surrounding neighbors, Edomites in the south, there was only a deputy of the king. So they were under, um, they paid taxes to Judah. Verse 48, Jehoshaphat made merchant ships to go to Ophir for gold, 
but they never sailed for the ships were wrecked at Ezon Gabur. Then Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, hey, let my servants go with your servants on the ships. But Jehoshaphat would not. And Jehoshaphat rested with his fathers, and he was buried with his fathers in the city of David of his father. Then Jehoram, his son, reigned in his place. Azahiah, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel and Samaria, the 17th year of Jehoshaphat. So Jehoshaphat had 16 years with Ahab. And he reigned two years over Israel. There's another one of those come and go guys. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he walked in the ways of his fathers, and the way of his mother, and the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. For he served Baal and worshipped him, and provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger, according to all that his father had done. So Ahaziah is just another two-year king in the north, who's evil, wicked, and boom, game over for the descendants of Omri and Ahab and the house of Ahab. But there's one final thought on this text tonight in the back end of Jehoshaphat's Summary and as a highest summary, it says that the, the ships going for gold were wrecked. Now, Solomon had ships that went for gold. So it only be natural that another king of Judah would have this idea like, hey, let's, let's trade in precious metals. Let's make this happen. Chronicles tells us it didn't happen because he made a treaty with the king of Israel to do this. He made a business partnership to go get gold with the king of Israel. And for this reason, the fleet of ships that was going to go get the gold was destroyed by the Lord. Okay, so we're using scripture to interpret scripture right now. We're told those ships were destroyed here. We're told the Chronicles are destroyed because he was in a business partnership with the king of Israel to do it. And then they're destroyed. So then the next verse says, Azahiah says, basically that my men go with your men, but Jehoshaphat would not. So between getting the fleet destroyed, then this, because the chronological order shows that this happens next, it would seem that maybe... Ahaziah was like, hey, you know, that's all bad fortune. That's why you have an insurance policy or whatever. Let's try this again. And Joseph says, no, I think I've had enough. I've had enough of doing business with the kings of the north. I might be a little slow. I might not be the sharpest tool in the shed. But I figured one thing out between you and your dad. I am not doing this with you guys for anything. So you know what that means? It means he learned the lesson. He learned the lesson. You just can't. You cannot be unequally yoked. It's going to be a bad ending, whether it's in a relationship, a business partnership, or anything of that nature. He was, he learned, I I really like this verse because it said, because Ahaziah is like, because you know the people that, that compromise of truth and blessings for people that are cursed and falsehood, he's just like, no, he's, he's like, no, that's not happening. We tried this, it didn't work. Just go back your way. Go build your own fleet. Sail out from Lebanon, but not from the Red Sea. No. So Jehoshaphat would not. And it just reminds me that we all make mistakes, but the best thing from a mistake is to learn the lesson, right? You can learn the lesson. This chapter is Jehoshaphat combined with understanding Second, Chron- Second Chronicles that Jehoshaphat really wanted to get along and like, let's all kumbaya, you know, like kumbaya on religion, kumbaya for war, kumbaya for business and ships going for gold. There's no kumbaya. There's just no kumbaya with these people. You just can't have kumbaya moments with these people. So stay in your lane, do what God's called you to do, do it faithfully, and let God deal with those kings in the north. Amen? In Jesus' name.